Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Brian Bird, and I'm a communications associate of the Runnymede Society. This episode of Runnymede Radio features Dr. Paul Daly, a member of the Faculty of Law, Common Law section at the University of Ottawa, where he holds a university research chair in administrative law and governance. In this episode, Dr. Daly and Mark Mancini, the National Director of the Runnymede Society, discuss the much-anticipated rulings of the Supreme Court of Canada in the so-called Administrative Law Trilogy, a trio of cases in which the Court has sought to clarify the law governing judicial review of administrative decisions in Canada. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, thank you, Professor Daly, for being here with us today. So shortly after um, Vavilov was released, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Happy to talk with you, Mark. Great. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, so for those unfamiliar, uh, Professor Daly, what was at stake in uh, these decisions, these recent decisions from the Supreme Court on the standard of review uh, from the perspective of administrative law doctrine? And, and can you maybe you could tell us a bit why the issues mattered so much and why they gathered so much attention? Well, the court dealt with uh, two issues. It dealt with the issue of selecting the standard of review and the issue of applying the reasonableness standard of review. And these matter because they are fundamental to the way the courts control administrative action. And administrative action can take a variety of forms. It can be life and death decisions in immigration matters relating to people's refugee status, all the way through to social welfare benefits, workers' compensation, uh, driver's permits, uh, security clearances, all the way through to how much French language content should be on cable television. Mm. And in any case where an individual or a group of aggrieved individuals wants to challenge a decision like this, a piece of administrative action in the courts, two questions almost always arise in Canadian administrative law. What's the standard of review and how do you do reasonableness review? And there has been a lot of uncertainty about these two issues over the last 10 years, in part because this is a complex area where you deal with multiple different types uh, of uh, administrative decision maker, but also the Supreme Court has not done a particularly good job of articulating um, its tests for selecting the standard of review or doing reasonableness review. And lastly, some of the issues here are very controversial. Uh, when we say the standard of review and reasonableness review, uh, we usually also use the word deference. Deference is about how much respect uh, courts should pay to the decisions of non-lawyers, uh, even when they interpret the law. And there are many Canadian judges and Canadian lawyers who are deeply uncomfortable with that idea. So for all of those reasons, the inherent complexity, the inconsistency in the Supreme Court's decisions, and the controversial underlying concept of deference, the issues of selecting the standard of review and applying the reasonableness standard of review have been a thorn in the court's side for some time. So uh, with all those difficulties laid out prior to the decisions, were you uh, of the view that the court could handle um, all of the different problems that uh, had occasioned its previous jurisprudence? Did you have faith that Vavilov would solve those problems? 
I, I did not. Um, I should disclose that I uh, assisted the lawyers in one of the appeals, not the Vavilov appeal, but the uh, the Bell Canada mm-hmm. and National Football League appeal. I, I did some um, I did some work with the lawyers uh, who were representing those parties uh, in preparation for the hearing. Um, and you know, the parties all came to this case with or to these appeals with a theory of the case. They had a particular view of what the issues were and how uh, they ought to be decided. And um, the parties were focused on, or the lawyers of the parties were focused on the interests of their clients. Um, And so that makes it a little bit more difficult to uh, paint a broad canvas for uh, the courts, uh, the, the range of issues the court had to address. And the adversarial process generally, it's not a royal commission. It's not a, right. parliament, a parliamentary hearing. Uh, it is a process which is limited in what it can look at. Um, so for those reasons, I was skeptical that the court would be able to provide a comprehensive uh, resolution of the issues that have been dogging Canadian administrative law. So with that said, I guess we can move right into the to the decision. And let's start maybe with uh, the court's analysis uh, that it undertook with respect to selecting the standard of review. Uh, so we, we're left with a presumption of reasonableness, but it's not the same kind of presumption that predated Vavilov. In other words, its theoretical justifications seem different. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and how the court's approach to selecting the standard of review will change um, post Vavilov. So I think the the key point really is that um, one of the issues that had come up was that for many years in selecting the standard of review and deciding between correctness and judicial resolution of questions of law uh, and reasonableness, just deferential review, which respects the view of the decision maker, in making that choice, uh, context had played an important role. And a variety of contextual factors, including most prominently the expertise of the decision maker who had made the decision, was a key factor in determining whether correctness or reasonableness applied. Now, what the court did in Vavilov was to sweep away context and now, uh, heretofore, uh, heretofore context had been important, but now going forward, context is really going to be irrelevant. All that matters is what the legislature did, the brute fact of whether the legislature provided for an appeal, which will give you correctness review, whether the legislature had set out standards of review, which the courts will uh, follow obediently, or whether there's no appeal right and the, all the legislature has done is to create a decision maker. Where uh, a decision maker has been created, it's presumptively reasonableness review subject only to categorical exceptions yeah. or a narrow range of situations. Um, so that's what the court did. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, what's interesting about the composition of the majority of the court, which delivered the Vavilov decision is that it contains judicial review hawks and judicial review doves. Yes. Uh, it contains judges who 
do not like deference on questions of law. And it also contains judges who are quite comfortable with deference on questions of law. So it is a broad coalition which has coalesced around the proposition that most of the time it's going to be reasonableness review unless there is a right of appeal, in which case it's going to be correctness review on questions of law. And I suspect that that coalition of um, divergent views on the courts also reflects a cons- or might also uh, be a consensus position in the Canadian legal community where people are just as divided as the judges on the court mm. about uh, these fundamental issues um, relating to correctness versus reasonableness. So on that note, I mean, you mentioned that we've gone from a categorical or from a, context, a more contextual approach to a categorical approach. And one of the major changes um, that will one of the major issues that will rebut this new presumption of deference is the the statutory right of appeal, which previously uh, hadn't played much of a role in, in the law of judicial review as it came to determining the standard of review. But now it will attract on uh, questions of law, the presence of a statutory review will attract uh, correctness review. So can you speak a little bit about what you think about that change? Is it a positive change or are there still ambiguities in how that will come to be applied? Well, I think there are certainly nuances and the nuances have been swept aside uh, along with the context. The first thing to say is that this is definitely a significant change. The uh, Concurring reasons of Justice Abella and Justice Karakatsanis, which are probably better described as disguised dissenting reasons, <laughs> um, uh, accurately, I think, say that this is a game changer for hundreds of administrative decision makers who were accustomed to getting deference uh, on Uh, questions of law and who will no longer do so. Now, uh, the court had certainly gone too far, in my view and in the view of many people and many critics uh, of the court's recent jurisprudence uh, in in demanding reasonableness review, even where you had an appeal clause which provided for an appeal on a question of law or jurisdiction with the leave of a reviewing court. Now, in that sort of scenario, it's it's very plausible, perhaps even compelling, to say that the legislature must have intended the courts to play a role in resolving questions of law, which arose for decision in the course of a decision maker's um, discharge of its functions. Um, But the court, uh, rather than taking a nuanced approach which differentiates between different types of appeal, simply says uh, all appeals uh, will attract the um, the Hausen and Nicolaisen framework for appellate review, which means correctness review on questions of law and palpable and overriding error uh, in other scenarios. Um, now, I think that is going to need to be worked out in future cases. Um, so uh, as we'll get on to, the court has articulated a robust and context-sensitive conception of reasonableness review. And there might be some scenarios, to be honest, where uh, in, uh, say, the securities context, and a hat tip here to to Derek Smith on Twitter, who uh, alerted me to this possibility, Mm. uh, you know, securities regulators can um, put 
someone out of business. Uh, people's livelihoods right. are often on the line uh, in uh, securities regulation cases. Now, that individual might have actually enjoyed um, uh, reasonableness review in the robust form that the court has articulated. Um, but now, uh, if there's an appeal, as there typically is in securities cases, um, what they're going to get, if there is a question of fact, is palpable and overriding error, um, which is a much less favorable standard for the individual. So um, I think there are nuances which have to be worked out. Um, um, but I think the, the court's solution does have the virtue of simplicity. Um, it has the virtue of simplicity in, in as much as appeals as a category will attract correctness review. And we're not going to worry about nuances within that category. Uh, and for everything else, the starting point is going to be reasonableness review. Um, if I were uh, trying to articulate a standard of review framework, I don't think this is what I would articulate. Um, but I can understand why the court articulated it this way. I can understand why the, the amici curiae who uh, advocated this approach advocated it. And I think it does stand a chance uh, of uh, attracting consensus on the court in the years to come and in the Canadian legal community, notwithstanding some of the nuances which will have to be worked out. One area uh, that apparently uh, escapes nuance now is that the, fa- the, the concept of jurisdictional questions has apparently been banished from the world of Canadian administrative law. Uh, I found that surprising because some of the members of the of the coalition in the majority had previously been staunch defenders of the category of jurisdictional questions attracting correctness review. Do you think uh, jurisdictional questions are truly dead now, or is there some, or is, will there be uh, a way that courts might be able to fashion the reasonableness standard on questions that previously were go- gone went to jurisdiction? Do you think the category is truly dead? Um, I'm not sure um, that that category will ever be dead until a stake is driven through its heart. Um, <laughs> and I am, I am not sure that that was accomplished in these reasons, um, in the majority uh, reasons in Vavilov, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that, so you look at paragraph 67 and paragraph 68, they talk about jurisdictional questions and they say paragraph 67, it's the end for jurisdictional questions. Right. Fine. Uh, But then in paragraph 68, um, they say, well, in reasonableness review, we're always going to be mindful of the fact that decision makers can't enlarge their own mandates. Now, um, I think there is scope there for the court's coalition to fracture in future cases between those who... um, who are comfortable with uh, relatively hands-off or deferential review, even on issues going to at the boundaries of the decision-maker's authority, and those members of the court who are more skeptical and would like to impose jurisdictional limitations. And I think if you if you carefully parse the court's reasons, uh, you can see how um, uh, those who like jurisdictional questions might uh, end up Um, even though jurisdictional questions have apparently been consigned to the dustbin of history, Mm. uh, managed to give them effect um, by some other means. I'd also note that um, there were two ways uh, in which um, the categories of correctness review have expanded somewhat uh, to compensate for 
the elimination of jurisdictional questions and which might also provide a vehicle for the resuscitation of jurisdictional issues in the future. The first is the category of central questions in the legal system. Now, previously, this category had depended, it was defined as questions of central importance to the legal system outside the specialized expertise of the decision maker. But now, because of the court's new approach, context has been swept away. And with that, expertise has been swept away as an animating factor in the justification or the selection of standard of review. The um, result is that now the category is anything that's a central question. And I think, again, the disguised dissenting reasons are correct to point out that there are many issues like discrimination law or human rights law, uh, which are of national importance and which arise in the resolution uh, of matters arising within a decision maker's mandate. So I think that has now become a wider category and, as I say, perhaps a vehicle for uh, the revitalization or resuscitation of jurisdictional questions in the future. Also, you will also note that we're talking now about the the exceptions to uh, the presumption of reasonableness review, this categorical set of exceptions, which is based on the rule of law, um, the court says. And the court says the rule of law is engaged where uh, a question requires a definitive, determinative, final answer from right. the courts. Now, for the most part, these are familiar categories, constitutional questions, overlapping jurisdiction questions, and the central importance uh, questions. Um, But the court also says that it is not closing the door fully to the recognition of another category in the future. Um, And it uses language which is remarkably similar, strikingly similar to the language used in Alberta Teachers and Canadian Human Rights Commission when the abolition of jurisdictional questions was being contemplated, but ultimately not accomplished. Right. It said, well, uh, we're not going to kill off jurisdictional questions because there might be some exceptional future case uh, in which we find one. And they've said the same thing again here um, in uh, the Vavilov decision. And we will see if the coalition holds uh, or fractures and perhaps uh, this Uh, The door has been left ajar and perhaps uh, some members of the court will wish to prise it open in the future. And perhaps on lower courts, uh, judges will be tempted to do so. Certainly, lawyers are going to make the argument that there is some newfangled category which ought to be recognized and attract correctness review. Very interesting. Well, if if it's any indication, uh, of course, there was a decision released today, um, the Canada Post decision, where it appears that most of the heavy lifting uh, was done in the terms of applying the reasonableness standard rather than determining the standard of review. So I'd like to turn to that side of the equation now. Um, So Vavilov, I think, introduces a sort of a more robust form of reasonableness analysis than what we had before. Um, And especially before, we had this problem of disguised correctness review. Uh, when courts were interpret or where courts were reviewing administrative decisions that interpreted the law, do you think the form of robust reasonableness analysis set out in Vavilov will now protect against that that tendency of disguised correctness review, or is that a tendency that is always going to be present in the law of judicial review? 
I think in a, to answer that question, I think I'd take a step back and talk about the importance of, of reasons. Um, yeah. Now, what the, the court says is that reasons are central to the right. application of, of reasonableness review and that where reasons are provided, which mostly they are in, in, right. the, in the contemporary setting for a variety of reasons, for a variety of uh, due to a variety of factors, uh, administrative decision makers usually do give reasons. It's very easy to do so technologically. There is a culture now of giving reasons uh, for the most part, and there are many statutory obligations to give reasons. So there are usually reasons, um, and reasons, the court emphasizes, are the starting point. Um, what you find, I think, if you look at cases where the court itself or other courts have engaged in disguised correctness review, that is, they say they're doing reasonableness review, but really they're doing their own independent analysis of the statute, um, you, they were often cases where there weren't any administrative uh, reasons um, to begin with. Interesting. Uh, and... Um, you know that that accounts in some part, I think, for the phenomenon of disguised correctness review. Um, Interesting. And this, the injunction to start with the reasons, um, is is an injunction to the courts to start with reasons, but it's also an injunction to decision makers um, that if you uh, want deference, if you want a court to uphold your decision, you have to give pretty solid reasons. And it is striking that even though expertise is no longer relevant to selecting the standard of review. It is highly relevant to the application of reasonableness review. And the court emphasizes on a number of occasions that it is necessary for decision makers to demonstrate that they have used their expertise and applied it to the problem at hand. Yes. And I mean, certainly um, when it comes to the two types of flaws that the court recognizes as being uh, could be present in reasons, the irrational chain of analysis, and then the sorts of legal and factual constraints. Um, the court is now saying that those interpret who's, who interpret the law um, must turn their expressly turn their minds to text, context, and purpose in interpreting statutes. So, do you think this admonition is a positive development uh, for reasons giving, or is it is it too much to ask that courts? at least engage with these sort of what the court calls these essential elements of statutory interpretation. Well, I think one thing which is clear and which is important, it was unclear before and, and now I think it has been resolved, is that uh, on judicial review, where reasonableness review is being applied, a court should not go off and do its own independent statutory interpretation analysis. Uh, right set up a benchmark or a yardstick against which to measure the administrative decision maker's interpretation of law. That is not appropriate. Um, rather, as in Vavilov and as in the Canada Post decision this morning, the starting point is the reasons that have been provided. You work from the reasons out, not from the statute in. Um, the court also uh, emphasizes that administrative justice is not judicial justice, right. that we don't expect uh, what we expect of courts from administrative decision makers. Having said that, there is then a tension between the court's insistence that decision makers need not engage in a formalistic statutory interpretation exercise yes. in all cases and its insistence that decision makers should look to text, context, and purpose. Um, there's a tension, um, plain and simple, between those two 
propositions. Mm. Um, and again, um, this is an area where the coalition of doves and hawks uh, might come under stress in years to come, and uh, where you might see some lower courts uh, requiring more in way in uh, in respect of decision makers referring specifically and dealing at length with text context and purpose uh, and other courts taking a more hands-off approach so in situation so i mean when we're talking about applying the standard of review uh, and we're talking about legal interpretation uh vavilov of course concerned cases with reasons but the court doesn't really speak to uh, situations where the reasons are sparse or non-existent does Vavilov equip us with the tools to deal with those situations, or is that a matter that's going to have to be left to future courts and uh, future litigants to deal with? Well, I think the the court is is quite clear that one of the um, one of the um, the tendencies in recent jurisprudence to permit decision makers to supplement their reasons after the fact or allow courts to supplement. Um, uh, defective reasons, uh, that is no longer going to be appropriate. And courts um, really, they, they should read administrative reasons fairly, but they shouldn't magic up reasons which really aren't there. Where there are no right. dots, dots on the page, they um, have this great um, paragraph from Justice Rennie, a federal right. court decision from a few years ago, where there are no dots on the page, the, uh, the court um, can't magic them up. It can join dots that are there, but uh, it can't invent dots which aren't there at all. Um, now, I, I think the, again, uh, in a case where reasons are sparse or non-existent, uh, it's more challenging to do this. Um, but the court, I think the court's, the court's view is that if you don't have reasons, if you, if you decision maker, have, have not done a particularly good job of articulating the reasons um, for your decision, well, then in those scenarios, you're less likely to get deference because you simply haven't demonstrated your expertise and experience um, and uh, really uh, knocks the ball back to decision makers to write reasons which are strong reasons, which are responsive to the facts of the case and the arguments presented by the individuals in front of the decision maker. Well, I and I, I think that's I think that's right, and I, I think um, in some parts of the court's decision, when it comes to applying the standard of review and even going to selecting the standard of review, uh, there are at least some pressure points or ambiguities in the decision. So, since we're coming up to time on the episode today, just wanted to ask what is the what are the sort of the main pressure points and ambiguities in the decision that you can see future courts struggling with? Uh, and and that may need clarification going forward. Well, I think you can read the dissent and um, and identify them pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so we've spoken about the um, the selection of the standard of review and the the definition of the the categories. Uh, that's going to be an issue going forward. Hopefully, though, that's more that might be more an issue about technicalities, which um, don't which won't depend on uh, ideological predispositions. Um, reasonableness review. I think the the central tension there there are two. Uh, one is the what we just discussed about the advice to courts and to decision makers right. about the principles of statutory interpretation. Um, the, other, uh, the other issue is there's a long list uh, in the court's decision of contextual factors which bear on the reasonableness of a decision. Um, it's going to be important for other courts to 
um, not to treat this as a box ticking exercise. Yes. So, so the dissent is quite right, I think, to say that this is not a, a box ticking exercise. This is a guide, a roadmap, um, but not something which needs to be followed literally. Um, the other risk with the the contextual factors is that some courts might take them as invitations to strike decisions down because in the court's view um, there is uh, an inadequacy in how a decision maker dealt with a particular issue. Now I think the court is very clear in the majority that uh, these contextual factors may, and it repeatedly uses the word may, may justify judicial intervention, but that again, the starting point has to be the reasons. The reasons have to be read holistically. They have to be read fairly. And courts, reviewing courts, should not be looking for boxes in which to put a decision and to strike it down on that basis. These may lead to uh, decisions being struck down, these contextual considerations, but not inevitably, and courts should exercise caution and read the reasons thoroughly, holistically, and fairly before coming to the conclusion that the decision was unjustifiable. Very interesting. Well, uh, with with that question out of the way, uh, I'd like to conclude today's episode of Rennie Mead Radio uh, by thanking Professor Daly for taking time so close to the holiday season to speak to us about this important decision. Uh, we look forward to your blog posts on the matter uh, as, as they come out. And uh, thank you again, Professor Daly, for, for coming out today. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, thank you for having me.